Welcome to Seniors and the People Who Love Them. I'm Cookie. I'm Binky. And I'm Wendy. Welcome to the 12th episode of our podcast. 12 episodes. That's pretty good. Most podcasts don't make it past seven. We're way past that. Almost double numbers. So last week we had Lisa on to discuss dementia and Alzheimer's. I thought it went really well. I know you work with her, Cookie. I thought she was really gave the audience a lot of great information. It's such a relevant topic that comes up over and over again, especially I feel like as we're getting into the generation of a lot of people facing illnesses with their parents. What did you think? I thought it was a phenomenal episode in that the numbers of individuals that will be experiencing either a family member or either themselves experiencing some form of dementia, whether it is vascular, Alzheimer's disease. And what I did enjoy or feel that it was important is that she also discussed the many different types of dementias. And people really are not familiar because anytime there's some loss of cognition, loss of cognitive abilities, the first thing people think, oh, my aunt, my mother, my brother, my sister has Alzheimer's disease, that it's not always true. There are many modern kinds of ways that we are learning to deal with people and interact with people who have these various types of dementias. And I think Lisa brought a lot of important information as to what to do as a caregiver and where to go and find the resources. And I also interested how she explained what part of brain that affecting throughout that process and just give some purview. What is affecting, which part of brain is affecting and what is that caused by? So she also gives some insight of neurological assessment, how that uh, disease process works. So that was wonderful to understanding how that works and what brain that affects. So it was a really good episode and her knowledge that she shared was wonderful. Okay, so today we will be talking about the Maryland Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. So ladies, what do you think the word ombudsman suggests when people hear it? It's a unique word. What do you think it means or stands for? You're a long-term care director of nursing. It's terror. That's exactly (laughs) what I was going to say. I said, here she comes. Here a whole facility. Like she's some person that everybody's scared when she walk in. Truthful, that is not the case. But yes, that's the myth that she coming to get us. In truth, you both have the same goals, which is truly the best interest of the patient. And you just have to find a way to come together on that. And and for me, from a social work, social services perspective, to me, it's advocate and be a voice. But I can honestly state that in my experiences, sometimes I have to agree with you two guys. When she comes walking in, I'm like, oh, God, what is she going to find out? (laughs) So hide your drinks on the nurses' stations. Before we start, we have a disclaimer. You want to give us a disclaimer, Pinky? Yeah. Our weekly disclaimer that we are not physicians or lawyer, if you have a medical issue or legal issue, please make sick practitioner or lawyer to give you 
professional advice. Well, I guess speaker for today is from the Maryland Long-Term Care Advisement Program. Her name is Lynn McCamey, and we are delighted to have her today. Did I say your name right, Lynn? You did. You did. And I'm actually very grateful to be here as well. Ombudsman is a Swedish word, so it's not a word that people are used to hearing in their everyday life. But believe it or not, the word is catching on. And it's actually in multiple genres, whether I've seen it in the school system, I've seen it in real estate, I've seen it in business complex. Today, we're talking about what does it mean for long-term care? And I wanted to share a little bit about that and what we do in the state of Maryland, but specifically in the Baltimore County area where I work as well. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your knowledge. Glad to be well, here. Lynn, tell, tell us about yourself. Okay. A little bit about yourself before we start digging in the program that you will be discussing. Okay. So I, too, have a social work background. I've been with Baltimore County Department of Aging since 2017, and I've always been connected to the Ombudsman's program. Prior to that, I was working with the state of Pennsylvania and also a little time in child care. But I do have a passion in making sure that people are treated fairly. They have access to information that's going to help them make good decisions and just making sure that if there is a need, we're trying to create the two bridges to bring that need to fruition for everybody who's in our long-term care settings. Our program has five staff and I am the program manager there. Wonderful. We discussed, Lynn, what is really <laughs> discussing your program mm -hmm. that the myth that we have let's take that myth knowledge care knowledge out of today's podcast to make sure that long-term con doesn't consider their enemy because i know it's not that's just myth because not having knowledge what you do about it what your job making sure what they do, if we give that some of that knowledge, maybe the, we will destroy the myth they are living in. I love the term you said, destroying the myth. And ombudsmen are advocates. I heard someone mention that when they were talking about what does it mean? We really want to make sure that the residents' voices being on the table and taken into consideration when their needs are being looked at, whether they're in a nursing home or an assisted living, or maybe in a retirement community that has that nursing or assistant portion. We really deliver our services probably through five hats. And when you think about it, those hats all segue back to meeting the needs of the resident. We do it from a resident driven standpoint. They get to give us our marching orders, whether that's just being somewhat of a companion where we're spending time with the residents in the facility and not wanting anything. We're not taking them from activity to activity. We're not requesting they get dressed. We're not requesting that they take their medications, but we're really just 
having a conversation and spending time in the long-term care facilities and really to remind them that they are a viable part of the community. They are active citizens that are entitled to all the rights that anybody who lives in a private home or a private apartment would get. So we try to foster what does it still mean to be alive and well and kicking in your community, even though your community now is within that nursing home or assisted living. We also wear the role of educator. We're trying to make sure that if there is a need for information or a need to understand best practices or a need to understand the guidance through the regulations that the state or the federal offices have, we try to make sure that it's broken down in a way that residents would be able to understand and not speaking maybe in medical terms, not speaking in legal terms, but just really talking about it on the residents level, whatever that may be, which in the end helps those residents make what we called informed choices, whether they're going to maybe look at it from something that's going to be more comfortable for them, whether it's something that they might agree and really network with the facility itself, but they have all of the details in front of them. So at the end of the day, the decision that the resident is making is one that they can feel most comfortable with because they've got all the pros and cons from what we consider ourselves to be a neutral source. We're not wed to what the policy may be of the facility. We're not wed to what the policy or procedures may be for the state, federal government, or anything like that. We're just giving the resident information so they can say, this is what's going to work best for me. And sometimes educating them on the pros and cons if they do pick a specific outcome that maybe isn't the norm or the most popular, still giving them the opportunity to make that informed decision. The other thing that we do is help facilitate and open maybe lines of communication, whether that is hosting meetings, bringing key stakeholders together that maybe wouldn't normally be there to brainstorm, assisting them if there are referrals that need to be made to outside agencies or making important phone calls to try to learn more about benefits and services that they might be entitled to. And one of the last things that we, or one of the second to last things that we do is assisting them with any referrals that they might um, want to make to learn more about their rights or secure any type of other representation, whether that's from legal services or court-appointed advocates or things of that nature. The last thing that I think we put on the table is working with resident council and family councils. Those are more of our group activities where if the residents want to come together as a large group and talk about some systemic things that might be affecting them globally, we have the ability to help them process that conversation, get it started making sure that their concerns are being brought back to the administrative team of the facility, or if they want to work with other outside agencies, getting them connected to what's the best way to do that and how do you do it 
while maybe holding their hand in the beginning stages of that and empowering family councils to find their voice if there are things that they want to put on the table back to the facility or even back to residents that are living in those sites as well. So those roles fall into the major hats that we wear, all wrapped up in a bow with advocacy driven by the resident's permission. It's probably the one thing that a lot of programs may say that they're resident-centered, but we can't act on anything that a resident has shared or family member or other support systems unless the resident or the appropriate decision-maker gives us permission to do. That's really wonderful. I think we've talked on this show about how seniors can really become the invisible population. I know I've worked in long-term care centers and certainly not where I'm working currently, Mm -hmm. but I've seen that seniors that don't have people to advocate for them or families to advocate them, sometimes they get treated differently than people that have a big, noisy, loud family. I've seen it happen. And seniors are those people that don't have family or friends to advocate for them are really vulnerable. I would agree. And that's one of the reasons that our state requires us to do routine access visits at a minimum of on a quarterly basis. We can always go more, but those routine access visits allow us to get into the facility, walk the halls, make sure our brochures are available, spend that unfiltered time just in the building, maybe attend an activity, whether it's bingo or something, arts and crafts, where residents just get a chance to make sure that they're learning about us and feeling comfortable. So if there should be something that's a little bit more private or a little bit more personal or a concern that they have in general, it doesn't always have to be related to what's happening in the long-term care facility. Maybe they are having outside issues with some outside entities that they're working with while they're living there. And that all becomes an opportunity for us to make sure that resident's voice doesn't get lost. And I have to also add, from a social work perspective, there have been times where um, the resident would want the ombudsman to be a part of the care plan conference, or sometimes we were just probably have a separate meeting. We had one experience where a family member had been incarcerated, and we were not able to reach out, obviously, because of that person being incarcerated, but our band really wanted that person to be a part of their care. There's much that you guys get involved in when it comes to advocating. I know that oftentimes when you come into the building, either it's for the first time, you always look for us. We so did. Sure, you <laughs> always try to find us. And yeah. sometimes you come with the information and then other times you may just, as you stated, just have a routine visit. But sometimes we don't even always know what the issue is. And so you come in, you're asking us for the information and asking us what we know about this particular, this particular circumstance. So mm. we work together. Um, we do. Quite we do. Sometimes our residents want to remain anonymous or 
be confidential. And that's another thing that's probably very unique with the Ombudsman's program as well. We do individual advocacy where we're able to really plow forward and the resident has given us all forms of permission and we can be very open and candid with the facility to say, here's a concern that resident Mary Smith has brought to our attention and we're trying to help problem solve. Or if the residents don't feel comfortable with releasing their name, then we do it more from a systemic advocacy lens where we might be talking very general. Could you please walk us through what are the processes for hydration in the building or what's the process for changing in the building? And we get a sense of kind of what the protocols are and then that helps us to plow into getting at the root cause or root issue that the resident may have wanted to share, but doesn't want to reveal who they are. And we do it from a systemic lens at that point in time. Another thing that's really good about our program, our services don't cost one penny. And normally our local area agencies on aging where the ombudsman's program is housed in the state of Maryland, We do work most of the county core hours, which is usually about the 8.30 to 4.30 timeframe, Monday through Friday. But if the need arises, the Ombudsman's program has the authority under the Older Americans Act to be available 365, 24-7, including holidays. But most of our core advocacy is during that Monday through Friday timeframe, but it could be off hours. Maybe if it's an early, an early time where it's a staffing issue and the staff are usually there on the first shift, then we might really be coming closer to that seven, eight o'clock hour. Or if it's something that the resident says staffing is an issue, but it's only on the weekends, we may visit on the weekends as well. The federal statute through the Older Americans Act also allows us to come into the building and not always have to have an appointment. Sometimes we do, but we're not required to have an appointment. So that way it allows us to see what might be happening in its natural habitat. I really work from the premise that we have to have a good working relationship with those in the long-term care facilities. We're not coming in there with our white glove and trying to have a gotcha moment because at the end of the day, as we've been saying, if we can resolve this and the resident is happy, then the staff are probably going to be happy. And it makes it for a much easier and beneficial and successful relationship, not an adversarial type relationship. So I don't look at it from the lens of what can we do to surprise you? I look at it through the lens of what can we do as ombudsman to support the day-to-day things and heavy lifting that the facility does that we don't do. And I agree with that. That's the message we want to send to the long-term community people that what really ombudsman is, they are for residents. We are there, our workers are there for residents. So if we combine our resources, it will be better care for residents. Residents will feel free to talk about their issue with not just you, with the facility workers. And we can solve the issue on a facility base and that will be better for residents. And that's what we all 
are therefore just to take best care for the long-term client. And then we need to understand that obmesmen is not our enemy. They are our tended help to let us take care, better take care of the residents. Absolutely. We try to also be some of the avenues for best practices. Maybe there's something that we've learned along our advocacy trail that we can bring back to facilities and that becomes another win-win. It may not be the way it's always been done, but maybe it's a new program, a new service that we've unearthed in our travels and we bring that back to facilities as well, sharing. Is the Ombudsman program a national program? It is a national program. All 50 states do have some shape and form of an ombudsman's program. They may look a little different based upon the geography, if it's more urban, if it's more rural, if there's a lot of land mass to cover. The other challenge is that some states that have higher older adult and long-term care populations may have more federal dollars or state dollars earmarked to help navigate that long-term care. So that could also shape the depth of that advocacy program within that state. Some of them might be hubbed with an area agency on aging, or sometimes people call that a AAA. Some might be hubbed with legal services. Some might be hubbed under social services, like the Department of Social Services, but they all have the same goal to meet two very big or overarching philosophies, which is to ensure residents' rights are being implemented and to assist in assuring that quality of care is being provided by those long-term care facilities. So we're all doing the same thing, but it might look a little different depending upon our geography and our federal budget. My experience with the ombudsman program, as I mentioned last week, was from the uh, capacity of being a volunteer for the program and working in the industry and having to interact with the ombudsman you wouldn't know the difference between an ombudsman that's volunteering or one that is being employed by Maryland State mm-hmm. the long-term key ombudsman program itself. And I say that because of the commitment, the, the way they have advocated on the behalf of the residents. And I find that to be just wonderful. The extent that I've seen ombudsmen come into the building, meet with residents as I stay, I don't know who's volunteering until they tell me that I'm a volunteer for the program, but the commitment level is, is phenomenal. And I think kudos to the Older Americans Act when they first breathed life into this advocacy component. They really wanted to make sure that the training and onboarding and certification would be the same. So there really wouldn't be a difference between the two. And residents could feel confident and the industry could feel confident that when you're working with an ombudsman, you're working with an ombudsman who has the same level of training expectation, the same continuing education requirements, and the same ability to problem solve. Sometimes we all need help, but you're going to have the same tools given to whoever it may be, volunteer or staff, to do the initial problem solving. 
Lynn, tell us about how one become volunteer. Okay. How to join, become a volunteer, and what about being employed as an ombudsman? The training, as I said, is the same for volunteers or staff. And I'll start with that piece there. The training goes through what we call a certification process. And that certification process has four to five streams that you do. You do a classroom portion. You do an online learning portion. There are formulated and to help know or gauge what your advocacy knowledge is after you've gone through the training itself. And you have to have a pretty high level of proficiency to make sure you're retaining the information and can put it to good use when you're in your volunteering or your staff portion. There are shadow visits where you would work and visit with a certified staff ombudsman or volunteer ombudsman. Um, you would see how they would do visits. You would look at their mannerisms. You would make sure that you have the resources available to provide or know how to do the appropriate research. And then you would be shadowed as the prospective staff or volunteer coming in to see how are you engaging? What is your ability to problem solve? Are you feeling comfortable when you're in a long-term care setting and not squeamish because of smells or sight or noise levels, things of that nature? And then the state ombudsman also has almost a, a writing opportunity to make sure that you're able to do the appropriate documentation with the program. The training itself does have five modules, and those five modules take you through the history and roles of the ombudsman's program, the aging process, documentation, problem solving, and how to make referrals. Those are major forms of what you would be learning. The process itself can be anywhere between one to three months just making sure that there's a proficiency level with, again, staff or volunteer, mostly volunteers, one to three months certification process, and that there's a comfort level to then uh, have you to become independent where you don't have to go with anybody anymore and you're able to start providing independent advocacy with whatever sites might be designated. Volunteers would be able to visit at least in Maryland, the Maryland state website. And there is a section in there that talks about, do you want to become a volunteer? You would fill out the appropriate paperwork and that paperwork would open the gateway to then leading to identifying the next upcoming certification or training or orientation class that will be provided. If someone wants to be employed, they would look at the local county's job websites as the positions would be listed when there is openings or availabilities. You would see it listed as an opportunity to apply. And then the person would fill out the job application that would be routed through the county's HR office and we would be notified so the interview process can begin. As long as the program has funds that could substantiate doing a hiring is when you would go through the formal interview process. That's the reason why 
we encourage people to volunteer because it's not often that our federal budget will yield more than the current staff unless there's a retirement or someone transfer out of the position. Do you have any male ombudsmen? Because in my experience, I've never met one. I don't think I have either. We have so few that we can literally count them on one hand throughout the entire state of Maryland. We have three males. We used to have a male staff in Baltimore County, but he had to leave due to health reasons. So now we're all female. We actually have one position that we're interviewing for at this particular time. And the field itself is very heavy with females. So that seems to be what we attract by default. And I tell you, when the male volunteers fill out their application, I beg them to stay. (laughs) I say, what can we do? We don't want you to leave because being a volunteer can be a heavy lift and a heavy commitment. We ask for a year minimum that you allocate to the program. We have many volunteers that have been here for years and years, but that's the minimum one-year commitment. And then we ask them to do two to four hours a month of volunteering, whatever time frame that they feel is most comfortable. Most of our volunteers have a lot of unscripted time, so they can pick and choose. But we do have some people that work, whether it's full-time or part-time, and we work around what that may mean, what we're looking to have as much as that continuity with once you get started, how can you keep that up by visiting the facility? Because the residents do look forward to it. It's almost like having a friend stop by for lunch. And I know sometimes elderly male residents really like another male to talk to. Hey, Maryland fellas, step up. We have the pleasure in Baltimore County with having student internships. Some other counties have them as well. When we do have males that come into the social service disciplines, mostly social work students or gerontology students, they are the males. All the males only want to talk to them, just like you said. Even when they go on Christmas break, oh, I'll wait for them to come back. It's not important. I'll wait for Johnny to come or Ian the come, they, like you said, they love having that camaraderie of another man to talk to. Yeah, I know. I work for hospice and we put volunteers in patients' homes and things like that. And a lot of times that's a request. They want another fellow to talk to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I can understand that this is a field that just is so heavily populated with the, I think, the compassion that comes from mm-hmm. females. Yeah, it's only been in the last 20 years that we've really seen a lot of male nurses come into the field. And I think it's wonderful. They bring so much. And I know patients react to that really well. Absolutely. We try to also look at our advocacy, not just through the complaint resolution lens, but we look at what can we do to enhance those quality of life levels. We recently started a knitting program. We have three volunteers that are really good knitters. So they've taken that skill set and brought it to the sites that they normally will provide advocacy. We have one man who is an artist by trade. We have partnered with our online electronic senior center and our nursing homes. So he is doing art classes online 
and we have tapped into getting some of the activities director to now make that an activity in the senior center. So as COVID has really not found its way back to having communal activities, we can get the video broadcasted and they can watch it from their room. And we also have a reading program. We have so many books that have been donated to the senior centers that we sit in. We started bundling them up and giving them to residents that have been in nursing homes and assisted livings. We started with assisted livings because they don't often get a good book to read. And that is an enjoyment for them. Not everybody wants to play bingo. Not everybody wants to watch TV. Mm-hmm. So they get a chance to keep that mind moving with reading a murder mystery or reading a romance mm-hmm. novel or a history book. And then with the CARES dollars that we were able to get as a program throughout COVID, we purchased some pads. And mm-hmm. then we then turned around and gave them free or charge to residents who we knew would benefit, whether that would help them staying connected to their personal support systems. We have a lot of residents that sometimes are managing their own outpatient services or specialty services. And one resident said, this allows me to do a little research on the different medical things that are coming in at my own pace. So I can feel comfortable with what's going on with my own health when I'm seeing specialties and then coming back to long-term care setting. So we've tried to look at that quality of life piece just as much as being there for complete resolution. I have another question. Does the ombudsman program go into group homes or assisted living facilities? We do go into assisted living. That is a part of our catchment area. The state of Maryland doesn't really use group home as a term for assisted livings anymore. Usually if it says group homes, it might be more relegated to developmentally delayed substance abuse or mental health, um, but not for long-term care. So for us, our catchment area is nursing homes, standalone assisted livings, whether they're large or small, some look like private homes that's still our catchment area, or ERCs, continuing care retirement communities that have a nursing and assisted living portion. We get a fair share of calls about independent living, subsidized housing, apartment complexes that have seniors in it. We don't provide advocacy there, but we link them to the appropriate community source that would give them some levels. That's great. So in terms of advocacy, if there were three major items that come to mind with respect to advocating, what would you say were the dominant items that seem to often show up when you actually are called, when the office is called, or when you go out to visit a resident? I would say the first thing is privacy and choice. uh, Feeling as though their privacy has gone by the wayside and they want to figure out how to put that back into perspective, which then blends to me very closely to the choices. How do they get to still share their voice that they want to work with a certain doctor or they don't want to work with a certain doctor? They rather have male caregivers than fa- female caregivers. 
they like to go to therapy in the morning and not the evening the way it's been scheduled for them. So some of those choices are made for them because the system is working and working that they're putting a schedule together that best fits the system. But it doesn't always take into consideration the resident's choice or resident's voice. The second thing that I would say is medication whether it's medication disbursement or education on what type of medication they're actually taking and what is it for. Not every resident wants to have all of those medications and we get to looking at, are there alternates? Are there other things that could be considered? Are there things that it could be coupled with? So maybe there could be a reduction in some of the heavy medication cycles that's being care plan for them at that particular time, and then meeting the medication disbursement time frame. The resident really may need to have certain medications before certain meals come or before they go to therapy or before they go to an activity. But if that's not delivered, then that's a hardship for them for the rest of the day. Maybe their pain level is, becomes higher. Maybe their agitation becomes higher. So we look at that as well. And they all have equal merit. Sometimes they rotate where they may fall on that list is staff, how the staff are working with residents, how they're communicating with residents, how responsive they are to call lights and actually providing the care and services. Right now, because of COVID, we've seen a real shift. And I think everybody has in the workforce and who's actually coming to work the education level of them to actually provide the care. When all of those things slip, it's the resident who bears the burden of maybe not having as educated person explain to them what's going to be happening for the course of the day. There might have to be job sharing because somebody didn't show up. So now the one person could be your medicine aide, your GNA or CNA for the day, and your feeder. It's really unprecedented what's happened in the last couple of years. I know at times we have just struggled just to have bodies on the floor. And it seems to be like the COVID element of it is calming down. But now it's like the great resignation, like everybody is moving which means you're going to have much greater turnover than normal. And even if those are qualified nurses or qualified aides, they're new. And the people that are training them might be new. And it all just erodes the care. It does. It does. And what it also then does is it hypes up the need for resolution whether that is making a call to the ombudsman's program to see how can you mediate and alleviate the pressure, intense or enhanced referrals to any regulatory or oversight, new referrals to boards of physicians or boards of nursing or boards of social work that they're like, why are we getting so many referrals? Because the residents are looking for any level of resolution to help address getting their needs met. And that brings me to the question, success rate in terms of solutions. What would you say if there would be a way to track the data of resolutions, issues that I'm sure you have some way of accounting 
for all of the calls that you get and what your success rates are? So I don't know that we break it down that finite. We look at all of the calls that come in and then we look at the consults that we provide. Was that an educational consult to try to empower the resident to actually resolve the issue themselves? Did we have to empower the facility with best practices and maybe that was a problem solver before it actually went on to the regulatory body? Did there have to be a referral made to an outside stakeholder that had oversight? That's regulatory, social security, care, Medicaid, legal services, maybe either some criminal components to the police. So we look at where our efforts and energy was put into as opposed to what was the resolution rate. Our data tool lumps fully resolved and partially resolved into one thing. So it's hard for us to know which was like a 100% fix and which was a 50-50 fix gotcha. uh, from that standpoint. But I almost feel like some now we've become such a litigious society and such a stickler for if it's not Numbers. written in code, yeah. then it's sometimes hard to substantiate if this is a sufficient practice or not. And I'm really looking at efforts that's going to compel us or catapult us to do more systemic advocacy on changing the laws. The laws are very old. Sometimes they're extremely gray. And if we don't have guidance or oversight that talks about how to work with traumatic brain injury residents or how to work with the new strains of Alzheimer's that you were talking about earlier, and not just looking at the old antiquated ones that only heard of Alzheimer's. They never heard of Warnicky. They never heard of Lewy bodies. They don't know the difference between traumatic brain injury. They don't realize that in order to come into a nursing home, you need a skilled nursing level of need. It has nothing to do with age. So when the populations drop in number, chronological number, they don't want to do the same thing as a 70-year-old who's there for therapy is doing. But our laws don't really address that. So sometimes it's hard to get a consistent, I guess, fix or better practice because the laws are looking at it through the lens of when they were first put on the books, which was late 70s, early 80s. It's 2023. People are living longer. (laughs) There are more comorbidities, specialty services that used to exist don't exist now. So a nursing home is a step down, 24-hour next setting if you're leaving the hospital, and it has nothing to do with age. And then you look at the educational knowledge that's required. If it doesn't match the admissions you have in the building, it's a recipe for disaster. You cannot ask staff to be able to work with a wanderer, a cutter, and a bipolar person all on the same ward. It's not fair. I've also noticed that what we're seeing, at least here in Maryland and probably somewhat all over, is that nursing homes just aren't making it. Long-term care facilities just aren't making it. And so they're turning over. The companies are selling. They're going bankrupt which also just creates chaos. It does. And we have a couple of 
newer chains to our network who are not from the Maryland area who seem to have become the to purchase or coordinate underperforming facilities. And when you buy underperforming facilities, nobody expects you to achieve. And unfortunately, they bring, it has brought, let me not say, because they could always turn it around, but it has brought a low threshold of acceptance that has now become the norm, whether that ranges from the quality of food they purchase to feed the residents, the quality of staff and pay that goes along with who's in the building. Used to be facilities were proud to say they went a little above and beyond the staffing ratio. Now they're not interested in doing anything more than what Marilyn says are Comars. And actually, when you read the definition, it says this is the minimum standards. So if all you're giving is the minimum standards, you can expect excellence. Very That's good an point. Ethical, yes. ethical point. Yes. And I you agree think with of you. Profit versus nonprofit. That's a, that's the issue. And I agree with you that suddenly in a couple of years, a lot of I would say outsider because they are not mm-hmm. in Maryland, mm-hmm. but like from New Jersey and New York area coming in Maryland and buying the book of facility. And I'm not saying that standard New Jersey standard as equal as our, but when they come in, they do not provide the standard that Maryland has been provided because they are different standard on that state. In my experience, I have worked with one facility that been bought year ago on a bulk. And a year later, they are on a market for sale. They didn't last year. So you think about every year turnover in long-term care facility, it takes resources, it takes resource money, and then that money coming out of somewhere, and that will bring us low expectation care in a facility because they cannot afford to provide much. So they have a staffing cut that they used to have a three staff on one floor. Now, because they cannot afford, they cut it to two staff with the same ratio. And mm-hmm. that chaos turned on and around. And I don't think so. That will provide the best care for the client in a facility. When you turn over the facility by different owner, you call, you have at least one month or one and a half month learning process with a yeah. new company. It's like computer system and all that. It takes time to learn new equipment and all that taken away the care that we can able to provide to the client in a nursing home. Absolutely. And all of that still harms quality of resident and patient services. And that's what we as advocates want to try to turn around as best as possible from a resident standpoint. What is what does all of that mean? We also have seen that the survey bodies, their hands, even though they want to do a better job, are tied because you can't substantiate 
an area of concern if you don't have a law to back it up. And the facilities risk management have become very savvy and they will be able to say when a survey process happens, oh no, we're not deficient because we're this or we're that. And it may be still an area of concern for residents, but the surveyor may not have the ability to cite the facility on it. So it just goes like on a watch list. And I know a lot of residents and family get very frustrated because they feel like, what can you do? We're not getting the law. And it does become a hard battle. And a lot of times they come back to us as advocates to say, can we just go back and try to open the lines of communication? Maybe compromise is what has to be on the table if we can't get a deficiency at that point. So you have certainly given us a lot of information, Lynn. Is there anything in particular you would like to add before we take a break? The only thing that I would say is that in the state of Maryland, there are 21 jurisdictions. If anyone wants to know more about the ombudsman's program in a particular area, you can always look on Maryland Department of Agent Ombudsman website, and it does list all the jurisdictions and their contact number. If you even want to learn about an ombudsman's program out of the state of Maryland, we can share that information as well. All right, so let's take a break and we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. This is the part of our podcast where we review any feedback or questions received and give you some resources if you need to continue your research on this very important topic. We received a message from the Baltimore County Department of Aging. As you may recall, Allison Vogren came on the podcast a few weeks ago and spoke to us about volunteerism for seniors. Allison sent us a message on our Facebook page. She said, thank you for this opportunity to highlight our RSVP program. If you're interested in information on that and you didn't catch us, I definitely say go back. I think that was three or four episodes ago. It's labeled volunteerism and it was really great. And this is an excellent opportunity as well because ombudsmans are dependent. A lot of people find after the retirement age that they are bored and they need something to do. And what better to do than to protect your your fellow seniors. So the opportunity is there. So thank you again, Allison. That was really sweet. We hope to have you and some other members of the Department of Aging join us again. Okay. At this time, I'm going to give you some more medical terminology. I decided to give some idea about what it is, like cabbage, coronary artery bypass, which is type of heart surgery. CNS, central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, CRF, chronic renal failure or failure to the kidney, CHD, congenital heart disease that you born with, CPK, creative phosphorkinia, blood test, done to see if you have heart attack. With this says, this is the time for we call pinky joke. Here the joke for a day, a doctor told his patient, there is good news and the bad news. The bad news is you have a partial short-term memory loss. The patient say, oh no doctor, what is the bad news? I like that one. 
That was good. Okay, that is our show for today. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. We would like to give a special thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you so much for just accommodating us. And I know that you have a life outside of what you do on a different <laughs> basis. So we certainly thank you for the knowledge that you brought the experience to our audience today. And I think you did tell us how we are able to reach the program should we have an interest. Is there anything else that I have missed in terms of what you presented? Our main number is 410-887-4200. We have a live person who answers the phone Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 4.30. And we have a confidential voicemail if it's after hours or before or over the weekend that comes exclusively back to the Ombudsman's program for follow-up. So it doesn't go all throughout the Department of Aging and our services are still free. So if you have a concern, a question, or maybe it's just something you wanna know more about, it could be related to long-term care. It might not, if it's not something that we work on, we will get you connected to the appropriate branch of the Department of Aging. And yes, call me up if you wanna volunteer. We need all the happy hands, helping hands in Baltimore County. We have 250 licensed facilities and each facility has an average of 100 to 200 beds. So we can use any and all help. Not everybody wants to visit, but we do have some other things that advocacy could also use help with. So call us up. Wonderful. And the website, it can be found on w.maryland.gov. You can just type in the search box and you'll hit the Maryland Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. There's even a little video to explain the program. It's great. And I'll put this in the show notes as well so that we get the word out there. Awesome. Awesome. It's been my pleasure, ladies. Thank you so much for your able podcast and getting the information out to the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please subscribe to get our upcoming episode. We will be releasing new episode every other Tuesday morning. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future topics, please visit our website, www.seniorscast.com. You can email us at seniors at seniorscast.com. If you would like to help us get our podcast more listeners, please give our podcast a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. The more reviews a podcast has, the more traction it gets. So please go ahead and do that. And you can also like our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Pinky. I'm Cookie. And I'm Wendy. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.